Welcome back to McAllister Oval here in Melbourne for the Division 1 clash here in the AFL International Cup. It is the USA versus Canada. The Army has always had an internal dynamic that real men don't need sleep and can just push on, and that's incredibly stupid. And I don't actually think toughness is that. His debut book, Where Others Won't, is a go-to guide for professional sports teams around the world. I'm going to turn it over to you, Cody. I would actually go a little bit the other way and say that Toughness is really probably closely linked to optimism in my mind. It comes down to one game. You've got to find it in yourself or look at the bloke next. If we can get more humanity back into our coaching, everyone is going to benefit. Fans, owners, players, the whole industry benefits. We're squeezing too tight at the moment. The tough stuff kind of came out of necessity. It was, it was the book that I needed to write because I couldn't find it for myself. I needed some help. Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. My name is Paddy Steinfurt, your host, and joining me today is a friend and colleague, but one of the world's leading minds and practitioners, really, in terms of coaching head coaches in elite sport and also leaders in other areas. Cody Royal is the author of, firstly, Where Others Won't, but specifically the one that relates mostly to this podcast is the book called The Tough Stuff, dealing with everything that comes with being the person the head of a program. He's a former head coach, now a coach of elite head coaches all around the world. Welcome to the show, Cody Royal. Thanks, Paddy. I'm looking forward to the toughness and the tough stuff coming together. Perfect fit. This, this has been years in the making, perhaps, but definitely months of talking about, well, your book has my word in the title. My podcast has your book like theme running through it, so we should probably get together. And finally, there's a gap in each of our ridiculous travel and coaching schedules, and here we are. So... One of the things that I did say as we were getting ready for this show, which I'm very excited about, is that I haven't told you this, Cody, but very few of my guests, even though they know the topic is toughness and that one of the most common questions asked here is what's your definition, like what does it mean to you? Very few have actually taken the time to scribble their own definition and take notes in prep. There is an Olympian, there is a Navy SEAL, and there is a coach of army slash baseball and mental skills coach there are three people out of all the that's above 15 our guests that we've had you're number four congrats on bringing notes and doing the homework so we're going to start off with that before we jump into all your background and the amazing winding journey that has led you to be where you are now talk to us about with your experience as a coach of head coaches former head coach yourself former consultant in the corporate space but specifically dealing with this head coach leadership version of toughness what does that mean to you in terms of what you've experienced and what you see with your clients right now can i start with what it's not or what i don't believe it is it's a hundred percent hundred percent a great place to start i know this podcast has you know military roots and, and a big military audience and so I'll, I'll use a military example because it's actually written in the tough stuff and it's from Lieutenant General David Barno, who's talking to the New York Times about the new manual and how, you know, the manual is introducing sleep and, and mindfulness and meditation. And he says, the army has always had an internal dynamic that real men don't need sleep and can just push on. And that's incredibly stupid. And really what he's talking about there is this idea of toughness, right? That we kind of have as slogging through and hard work and kind of this this really blind, just get through it. And 
I know because I've listened to your podcast, that's a lot of people's responses. And I don't actually think toughness is that. I would actually go a little bit the other way and say that toughness is, is really probably closely linked to optimism in my mind and to pull in a, a Simon Sinek version of optimism. Like I, I think it's this, you know, looking at a situation, realising the situation for what it is, but then also thinking that the future is bright. That's my idea of toughness. And then I think what that leads to is let's look at some, rather than just having like one definition, I think we can also look at where it's spread out through different things. So I've got a, a newborn and so toughness is, is a mother of a newborn, right? Like once you've seen what they go through, in the hospital, the first three months of a kid, like that is toughness. You need some serious optimism there. You need to look at a situation. I've got a human being that's relying on me and think that the future is bright and I'm going to continue down this path. I look at people that say no to things. I think that's tough. I look at people that are willing to challenge the status quo and go against the social narratives and, and to challenge ideas look at people that challenge themselves and their own ideas and so i don't think it's this traditional idea of like physical slog and put yourself into a state of emotional exhaustion at the mm -hmm. expense of everything else i think it's actually the other way around like saying no and being optimistic and yeah i, I know that's a very that's uh, probably just my definition and a lot of people would disagree with that but yeah i'm sticking I think to it's, it well no for sure stick to it because it actually you speak when you apply it in the context of what you do day to day, um, particularly having a newborn, but you talked about their, you know, the concept of having one human reliant on you as head coaches or leaders in other areas. There are many humans relying on you. Uh, your ability to say no to things, your ability to think outside the square, challenge your self-development like that really applies to a lot of people who would engage with you, have all of those things present. And it's one of the things that I've been... I think initially I was surprised, but now I'm almost expecting it half the time is that usually when people start talking about trying to improve toughness in a team or in themselves or in someone else, generally the conditions are already there. Like these people are already tough. Most humans have toughness within them. Mm. It's about being able to identify it, access it and apply it at the right times. And so your definition fits that. But let's, let's dig in a little deeper on that concept of the one human who's relying on you right now, you and your wife. How old is the newborn? Uh, Ollie's seven weeks. Ollie, shout out to Ollie. We're going to dedicate this show to Ollie and we'll play it back to him when he's old enough and dumb enough to listen to it. And, uh, and so obviously that informs a lot of your day-to-day, -day, like even your sleep cycles and your ability to work with coaches, but probably some of the analogies and metaphors you use in your work. How similar is being a parent to being a coach? You've been a head coach before. Is it similar in ways? It's obviously going to be different in a lot of ways, but what are the, what are the crossovers? There's so many crossovers. I, I, I joke that this is my, my greatest coaching appointment, right? And <laughs> it's actually been a great thing for my coaching and, and my thinking about coaching and, and helping other coaches because, one, now I've experienced what it's like to be a, a new parent and what they've been through. But also, funnily enough, I'm now in the state of depletion that I talk about. I'm spending my time trying to dig coaches, head coaches out of 
a state of depletion which doesn't allow them to coach to their fullest potential and, and to use their talents. And I'm now sitting in a scenario that I, I can't avoid and being in depletion, right? I sleep on 90-minute cycles and I was up at 2 a.m. this morning, you know, feeding him. And, and so it, it's actually really interesting going through this when my work is also to help dig head coaches out of the state that I'm currently in. So it, it's a bit of a bizarre dynamic. But again, the, the feeling of going through it only strengthens my work and emboldens me to fix, you know, the state that we as head coaches have put ourselves in. Yeah, let's we'll definitely put a pin in that and come back to it because that is a key element of particularly for your target audience, if you will, the, the people you serve, but for most of the people who tune in here, that, that state of depletion, kind of like you said, you have no choice as a parent, often as a head coach, particularly in certain scenarios when wins and losses are deciding job security, there is not a lot of choice going on. Likewise, the performers themselves and people in other disciplines that have a similar demand. So interested to hear how you talk people through handling that and how you're handling it yourself right now. But for the moment, let's just talk about how you got to be the coach whisperer the guru of head coaches, if you will, as a, a you, listeners will be able to hear, there's two Australian accents on this show, I think for the first time ever. And coming from Australia, ending up living now based in Toronto, Canada, and coaching coaches in a bunch of different sports throughout North America and in the UK and Australia as well. Like, how does that happen? How did you go from being Cody Royal Aussie dude to Cody Royal coach whisperer? Well, I won't bore people with the full journey, but, you know, I came through the AFL talent pathway, played with your brother in the pathway, and we haven't mentioned we're from the same suburb in Melbourne, so it's not just two <laughs> Aussie voices. We're, we're literally neighbours. And, yeah, I actually fell out of love with the game when I didn't get drafted. I, I My whole life was set up around playing AFL footy. That didn't happen. You know, I'd kind of, I've hit a lot of the metrics. I'd, I'd been in a lot of the state teams and things like that and didn't get there. That rattled me between 18 and 23 and, and really felt like I was floating. Uh, I didn't want to do anything at university. I wasn't interested in any of the courses. And it was actually coaching that helped me re-find the passion for the game. And so I was a coach at 23 back in that same talent pathway. and that then shot me into coaching in general and got me really interested in how to coach, how to teach the game, how to, how to connect with people in the game, how to connect with players, how to put all the pieces together. And I was very fortunate when I moved to Canada, you know, the initial idea was two years, do the working holiday thing that, that a lot of Aussies do and get some international experience. I got over here and loved it and stayed and, and got involved in coaching here. And so that led to you know, high performance program and the ability to really build one almost from scratch. And so, you know, spend 10 years in that environment and that brings access to all the, the other high performance coaches in Canada. And yeah, that was kind of the, the coaching thing. And so I'm quite weird for a, an Aussie in that most of us compete until we're about my age, whereas I I essentially stopped competing and started coaching at 23. And so here I am at 30, that's turned 38 with 16 years of coaching experience. And 
yeah, I started writing about it as a way to educate myself and to learn. And that's how the books came about. And the tough stuff kind of came out of necessity. It was, it was the book that I needed to write because I couldn't find it for myself. I needed some help. I got to a, a position where I ran into something that I couldn't deal with and went looking for resources and it wasn't there. And so I love that. Because one of the things that we like to ask as we get into people's definitions is how did you actually get to that definition, right? And for you, that is almost the story of it is you went on this coaching journey, discovered that a lot of the stuff that's available, even in elite high-performance pathways and coach development programs, is very X and O heavy and not very you know, X and Y chromosome heavy dealing with humans. And particularly your book, The Tough Stuff, which I can highly recommend to anyone who is into, first of all, being a head coach, but secondly, even just leaders. And I'll talk about my personal experience with that a little later in the show. But as you described, it's the only book that focuses entirely on the human experience of head coaching. So it's it's about the emotional toll, the identity issues, the loneliness. It's not about tactics. It's not about wins and losses. It's not about judging whether we're good or bad. It's about dealing with other people, which is clearly a, an issue that head coaches deal with more than others. And at the same time, for people who are CEOs, for people who are parents, for people who are principals, who are managers, people who are leading in any capacity where other humans are reliant on them, all the strategy in the world doesn't help when there's an interpersonal issue or there's a philosophical issue that could scuttle everything. So as you dug into it, Tell us about probably the most surprising thing that you discovered as you got into away from the strategy of coaching and more into the human side of it. Well, there's a couple of things. One, again, it came from a place of necessity. So I, I had a player take his own life. And so, you know, I was looking at the emotional side of coaching. And one surprising thing was that it's not just missing, it's non-existent, Patty. Like, you cannot find anything about the emotional side of, of coaching and leadership. It's and you're all, saying there, when you say that, you're saying the emotional toll or coaching people's emotions? Like the emotional toll, yeah. the stressors, you know, they're kind of hidden in autobiographies and, you know, at the end of the career and someone kind of maybe has a passage about it, but... They don't want to hear stories about that, right? You want stories of drinking with Joe DiMaggio and Frank Sinatra in the bar. You don't want to hear about. So those things tend to get omitted. And, and what both. that does is... I want the stories yeah. of drinking with Joe DiMaggio <laughs> and the stories about what, the hard work behind the scenes. But keep going. Yeah, me too. And, <laughs> and I think what that has been driven by is this idea of toughness that we have, right? Like it's this, we pay you a lot to put up with a lot of bullshit. And so deal with it. Like this is part of the job, but that's now over-indexed to the point where it's detrimental to leadership in general and, and certainly coaching and certainly connection. So that the fact that it was missing so comprehensively was a big thing. And then the other surprising thing that I found <laughs> was actually on the flip side of releasing the book was just how many people messaged me and I've been told I've, the book saved marriages. I've been told that the book saved lives. I've been told that the book saved careers, you know, coaching jobs, careers. For sure. Jobs. 
uh, I've been told that, you know, a lot of men in particular were able to give the tough stuff to their wives and say, this is why I'm so obsessed. I haven't been able to put words to it. This is why I'm awake at 2am thinking about caring about these players or their circumstances or whatever it may be. And so the amount of people that have DM'd me, it has been surprising. So many, the people that you see on television every single day pop into my, my DMs and say, like, thank you for writing this book because it has perfectly described my, my human experience of coaching. Yeah. And that was surprising. I, I wasn't writing it to do that. It was therapeutic for me. So to hear that there's a community out there that are all kind of struggling together was surprising You're listening to Toughness, a podcast where some of the world's best performers from different fields share their personal stories about pressure, stress, and success. This series of interviews is a product of the Human Performance Think Tank, with thanks to the U.S. Army and Booz Allen Hamilton. Coming up later in the show. In the elite world, I've never met anyone whose own expectations aren't far exceeding what outsiders think of them. So damn proud! I'm going to share two surprises for me that really aren't surprises, but they were, I talk about this in the context of surprise as when I'm running a session with athletes, whether it be an individual or a group, or likewise with a venture capital firm that I work with, they deal with different pressures, but, you know, stories of having $100 million deals that they have to decide yes or no in two hours, like it's a pretty high pressure thing that they deal with, right? But the same responses happen is that when you say something, that hits home, that's the truth, with people, even if they're not a coach, CEO, whatever, I'm a director of performance in a high-performance organisation and it still rang true with me. This concept that if I'm, I'm sorry, I strayed a bit from the story there, but if I'm talking with a group and I say something that hits home, is the mmm moment. And you see a lot of people, they're like, they pause for a sec, they'll nod and they'll just say mmm. Now, if it's a really profound thing, that's the whole room does it and everyone almost laughs because they're like, holy shit, don't you feel that too? But yeah. I had that and I assume many others have had it in your reference to the concept of the weight. Now, you talked about the emotional toll, which is a nice phrase, but when you put it as the weight, capital T, capital W, that hit home for me. Not surprisingly, I'd felt it, I'd experienced it, I've dealt with other people who deal with it every day. But when you put it like that, it was really different and it hit home and it was so simple, right? But the fact that when you become the guy or the girl, woman, whatever phrase you want to use, you are the person at the head of the program, it's different. You can be assistant coach, offensive coordinator, assistant man, whatever you want to be, even the VP. But when you're the P, president, the head coach, the jefe, as they call them in uh, baseball, the gaffer in soccer, whatever it is, when you are the person, that weight is different. It hits different and it doesn't go away because no matter what time you wake up, your phone is full of messages and emails and you can engage with them whenever you want. There's always someone waiting and wanting and needing shit sorted. So talk to us about how that concept coalesced in your mind and how, and maybe a couple of examples that might resonate with the audience, military or otherwise, just people who are leaders and maybe haven't heard the concept of the weight but it'll ring true for so the way that i describe it is you know people have this concept of of leadership and expectation they they talk about the weight of expectation but in the elite world i've never met 
anyone whose own expectations aren't far exceeding what outsiders think of them. And so I, I don't subscribe to that as like the core idea. The, the weight for me is the emotional weight of caring about people and caring about your role in their development. And so it's really interesting because you're spot on there, Patty. Like the story that sticks out to me is from Dan Quinn. And Dan... So Dan, for those who don't know, former head coach of the Atlanta Falcons in the NFL, current uh, defensive coordinator for the Cowboys maybe. Yep, still there. And hadn't been a head coach at any level. So, you know, he jokes he'd never even called a timeout until the NFL. And he said to me, when I asked him what the difference was, like when you were paying attention to how things changed when you're a head coach, what were some of the instances of that? And he said, there's a couple one, your relationship with your staff changes because now their whole livelihoods are tied to your success. He's like, there is nothing like that. Defensive coordinator is a big job. It's a prestigious job. You're on television, all these kind of things. When everyone's kids are now in private school and they're tied to your success, that is a weight that manifests so many times over. And when you start to fail, when you lose a Super Bowl from 28-3 up, that's what comes up for you. It's this expect, It's not the expectation, it's the caring. And the other thing that he said to me is the thing that changes is immediately just by a job title, now everyone in the building treats you differently. And so he said the biggest realisation for him was that whoever walked through his office door, that 10 minutes that they spent together, that might be the most important 10 minutes in that person's day. And they might've actually had a sleepless night worrying about shit. I've got to walk into DQ's office tomorrow and give him some bad news. Right. And so it might just feel like another 10 minutes, but to that person talking to the Hefe, the gaffer, the coach, like that is huge. And you don't have that in other situations. And so I think it's a, really important point. Frank Lampard talked about it. Steven Gerrard talked about it. All of these players that are coming out think they know what coaching is. And then you you dig around in their interviews and they are all talking about it. It is different. Brendan Rogers has talked about it. It is a different lens that you are viewed under. And the reason the weight works is because you physically manifest a weight on your shoulders. That's that phrase, right? That was one of the things that I would say was a bit of a surprise for me the first time I experienced it when I went from being a coach within a system to being the head of, not even the head of the entire performance department, but the head of mental performance. So I had other coaches underneath me. I was responsible for 200 plus athletes, 60 odd staff. This is with the Toronto Blue Jays is about the time that you and I met and So it was serendipitous that we crossed paths at that time because I was feeling the weight but didn't really know it. I know that my health was suffering. I know that my sleep was definitely suffering. But tell us about some other things that could be signs for people that they're actually experiencing the weight, but it's kind of hard to put in in words. Like when someone says, how's your job going? And you're like, ah, like everyone thinks it's awesome, but I don't even know where to start in terms of how overwhelming it was at that point when you and I met. It was kind of hard to describe and still is in sometimes because it's hard to put into words the overwhelm, right, which is, a, I guess, a symptom of the weight. But what other things show up for people 
that could be early indicators that maybe they're dealing with stuff there. They didn't. They don't even know they're under that level of duress until sometimes it's too late. Yeah, I mean, you've kind of described probably the key one: this feeling of being stuck, like not knowing even where to start. Which, you know, when you take a step back and you look at, just to use your example, because I know you, you are a highly skilled, highly experienced practitioner who should know where to start, right? Like you've got all the tools to know where in the bathroom when you're doing the renovation to go and and start chipping away at the tiles first, right? But there's this weight kind of detracts from your ability to, you know, have access to that experience, to have access to that talent. And it actually becomes a source of frustration because you don't know where to start and you don't know how to kind of push through some of the barriers that you're facing. That's a majority of my work right now. And so is, that manifests in people who should be able to make decisions can't or they make bad decisions? Yeah. Like what's the, how does it show up? Yeah, both. So a feeling of that you don't know how to progress behavior change in that you're you start to become more flippant more aggressive you know you you start to deal with situations badly because you're in this state of depletion and so the way i I describe it in coaching is right like your primary coaching skills are, are awareness communication and decision making any coach anywhere in the world track and field nfl doesn't matter those are the three things now awareness communication and decision making right You can deploy them in any situation. And the three things that probably most rapidly deplete when you are in a state of exhaustion are your awareness, your communication, and your decision-making. And so this is like getting into neuroscience territory, but I think there's enough evidence now to suggest that, that that is undoubtedly true. And so when you start to see signs around those things, you can't find words. You're making poor decisions that are digging yourself into a a hole. You're actually paying attention to the wrong things or you you lack focus. That's a majority of my work now is, is finding ways to free up coaches so that they can get better access to those three primary skills because the thing, you know, this better than most, Patty, think of the knock-on effect down to the players right? Like if you're lacking in your awareness, communication and decision-making, how poorly are you coaching them? Like their development is severely hampered by the fact that you can't sleep. You feel like you have this ton of bricks on your shoulder, shoulders and, and you can't cut through the political red tape of the organisation and you just feel stuck and blah. It's remarkable how consistent that challenge is across the elite sporting landscape. Yeah, and yeah. I was going to say, like, forget elite sporting landscape. Well, don't forget it. It's your bread and butter, mine too in some ways. But the more I've been drawn into other fields, like sitting in heart surgery department, sitting in NASA, you know, the International Space Station's Mission Control Centre, they talk about the same thing, is their ability to maintain good situational awareness, to communicate effectively, even in life and death situations, and their ability to make the right decisions, right? These are life and death scenarios that definitely exist in the military and exist in some of these other areas. And I was actually surprised and am forever thankful to some people who drew me into that community because I was like, oh, it's just sport. It's not life and death. But as you mentioned earlier, 
to the leader, it is life and death in the sense of it either ends a career, it changes someone's identity, and or it just they care so much about either their role in the community or the team they're leading or the business they're running or the championship they're chasing, that to fail is a death of sorts. Now, it's not the same, but it has the same internal consequences on our new, like you said, the neuroscience doesn't know the difference. I'm curious about, you talk about your work day-to-day these days is digging people out of that spot, right, where they're stuck. For those who aren't head coaches, who don't have the responsibility cash a or potentially cash to engage with Cody Royal and have you help dig them out what are some of the first couple of you know the, the first things for people who are in the tough stuff in a business as a CEO or an entrepreneur running their own thing as the head of a school as the head of anything what are some of the things for you that you know are pretty easy go-tos as a first step for those people who get stuck because the weight has become too much momentarily, maybe not permanently, but they're stuck, overwhelmed. They don't have an answer. Normally they're good, but they're they're kind of stuck. How do you get through that tough stuff? Yeah, so I I wrote about this concept in the book called High Performance Knowledge Work, and I think it holds the key to a lot of this discussion. And this is the foundation of what I do and what I write about, and it's pulled in from, you know, the management concept of knowledge work. So the the druckerism, which is, you know, when your knowledge becomes a resource for the organization and expands the amount of resources available to an organization. So it's not things, it's not physical things, it's the knowledge of the people and the knowledge of you. Other other industries might refer to that as human capital. Human capital. And that's what he's describing there is, you know, the modern marketer, the modern accountant, the person that they're thinking is actually the tool for the organization. So when you pull that in and then you pair it with high performance and the lessons from science, and what I've done is I've paired it with, you know, Lisa Feldman Barrett's concepts around, you know, the body budget and how we spend resources against particular tasks. And then there's also some self-determination theory in there as well in that autonomy, competence, and and relatedness. And so when you bundle all those things together, you kind of get this idea of high-performance knowledge work. So really what it is is working better, not more. And when you audit your behaviours and you audit your tasks, and literally I, I have coaches write out every single task they'll do in a week and we'll go through line by line and cross some of them off and be like, there is, you are just doing that because it landed on your plate one week and you just kept doing it. You don't need to be doing that. You don't need to be doing that. You don't need to be doing that. And to go back to my opening gambit, Patty, is people that say no to things, leaders that say no to things and really deploy their mental resources, their emotional resources, their knowledge work against the right things, that's where we need to be headed. And again, so you've got to really protect your brain, protect your your resources to deploy against the right things. And we're not doing that. We're deploying it against everything because you can, right? And there's this idea that, you know, I've got to do the video analysis. I've got to plan the training. I've got to speak to all the guys. I've got to go down to medical. I've got the analytics guys want to come in and and it's all over the place. And so it's really spreading yourself thin. And then that catapults you into this depletion that we see. And so I was speaking with a colleague yesterday 
from my time at the Toronto Blue Jays, who's gone on to work at the LA Dodgers, LAFC. She's possibly one of my favourites, Tanya Bielostovsky, Tanya B. Uh, it's a lot easier to say. And we were talking about this exact concept and specifically she was kind of coaching me through a current situation of not necessarily overwhelmed, but definitely a, a very vague and undefined environment and a huge scope of a current project within a high-performance org. And I think she talked about the same thing. Tell me if this sounds like the way you would frame it. She said, you need to sit down and you need to go through three headings and put everything that you do under these three headings. Eliminate, automate and delegate. And that allows you to just be a little more focused in here's the things that you have to do to do your job well and everything else can go kick rocks. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, precisely. Uh, I mean, you, you can do that in a whole bunch of different ways. And I mean, you could pull in time management processes and, and things like that to really find whatever works for you. But ultimately, we're talking about the same thing is, is working better. What, what are you actually going to do? And I'll tell you the key to this right now. Patty is is actually explaining it to others. So I talk about explaining coaching to those being coached because what ends up happening is when you get this right, you have a shitload of time and it makes you anxious because you think that you should be frantically busy. You should have this frantic anxiety about yourself. And, and if you don't, you get anxious and you have this impression that everyone else is saying, well, what are they actually doing? That's actually what leadership is. Having the time to think, having the time and the resources to yeah, deploy your mental capacity against the right things, that's leadership. But we live in a world where there's this idea that unless you're running around with your hair on fire, you're not actually doing your job. And so, you know, again, I think it comes with, we have to also educate that this is why I'm doing this. This is why I want to be home at 5 p.m. to cook dinner for my wife because this is an energy-giving activity for me that makes me a better leader, a better coach. You are listening to Toughness. And if you're this far into the episode, there's a good chance you like the show. You can add to the conversation with the whole review, rate, subscribe, and share thing. If this helps just one person who needs to hear what our guests share to get them through today, it'll all be worth it. Stay tuned for more coming up, including... If we can get more humanity back into our coaching, everyone is going to benefit. Fans, owners, players, the whole industry. So damn proud. So one of the other tough things that comes up with that, I think, from experience and also from having witnessed people trying to change the norm from the seat. So it's one thing for you and I to be coaches of people or leaders of people and encourage them to do that. But when a head coach of an NBA team starts trying to change their practice or the head coach of an international football team starts giving themselves space in between windows, there are reactions from people who are used to something different and arguably are pretty wedded to the idea that the higher up you go, the harder you should work. That becomes one of the other tough things that you have to deal with as a leader is if you don't do things how people think they're supposed to be done. And until you produce results with that approach, you're going to continually be questioned. How do you instruct your leaders and how do you encourage leaders who are listeners to this podcast, whether it's coaches or otherwise, to handle that element of the tough situation they might find themselves in? The great thing is, 
in high performance is you can use high performance and you can use humanity. And so what I often have my coaches do is explain it to their players in particular in their own terms, right? And so you talk to them in athletic terms. What would happen if you worked 20 hours a day? What would happen if you trained 20 hours a day? How would you feel? Kind of step them through the process and you're trying to take them to the place where you're at, right? You would be in complete exhaustion. Would you be able to perform? No, I wouldn't be able to perform. What, what would be missing? Would you be able to communicate? Would you be able to make good decisions? Would you? And performers, as you know, are hyper self-aware and they'll kind of sit there and like you described in the boardroom, kind of sit there and go, hmm. And you can kind of take them through this journey of, this is why I think I need to make this change. And the knock-on effect, and this is the, the absolute greatest thing about it, is the knock-on effect is you're a better coach to them, right? And so your ability to impact them is huge. That then personalizes that message for the athlete or the player and kind of takes it out of this, this is just some theory that, you know, was in a paper and I'm playing around with and I'm doing less, no, 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 humanize it. I can be a much stronger, better coach, a more personal coach, a more human coach to you if I'm allowed to see my daughter before, so before I love she it. goes to bed. Love it in theory. I probably love it in practice as well. And maybe hypothetically talking from personal experience, but potentially for others, Dan Quinn as an example, when you're at the top of a unit of at least 50 staff and then 90 players and then other front office people. Like this is a scale question, right? One-on-one conversation. If I'm a CEO of a small business, you know, I'm an owner of a small business maybe and I've got 10 employees, I can have all those conversations. If I have 200 people to have those conversations with, it becomes a little problematic. Yeah or no? How does that work for you for people who have scale under them when you give them that message? Yeah. So, I mean, it's the same thing, right? So it's not just going to be the head coach. That's a coaching philosophy that ends up trickling down. And so it's going to be the same conversation for your defensive coordinators, for your all the people that are down having the one-on-one conversations. I would hope that the head coach, who is the one that is setting the tone, is setting the tone for the rest of the, that staff, And so it starts to become, again, it's a personal thing. It's not just I'm doing this. All our staff are going to be doing this. And the knock-on effect is is to you. Because we're doing that currently. We're driving a culture of fatigue because the head coach won't go home and won't go to bed. And so all the staff are impacted in the same way that the head coach is. Because if I'm an intern, I'm not going home before the head coach, right? I'm hoping for that 12.30 in the morning chance meeting in the video room where they give me a project and it allows me to progress my career. Now, smart from the intern, not particularly smart from the head coach because that's just driving that fatigue culture further and further down the line. And again, the knock-on effect of the players is is quite drastic. Yeah. I think, um, so you're talking about cascading as in the head coach would have that conversation with his leaders, defensive coordinator, special teams coach, head of performance, whatever it is, and then they would have it with their staff. Is that what you're suggesting? 
Yeah, where yeah. you've got scale issues like a, yeah, 200 people, it, it needs, it's an organisational thing. I, I deal with the head coach because they're the ultimate decision maker and they're the one that, that needs to lead it and display to the rest of the staff what it needs to look like. But ultimately, it should be an organisational ethos around if we say we're a learning organisation, a teaching organisation, if we say we're, we're about knowledge and we're about finding nuances and we're, we're about noticing the right things on what the opposition are trying to do to us, that needs to be an organisational yeah, yeah. thing. That's not one person in a group. One other tough ripple effect, I guess, or impediment to that philosophy rolling out is, let's say your owner, hypothetically speaking, not talking from experience, but the owner of the organisation that this coach works for either speaks a good game but doesn't live it or just totally just says, no, nah, it's bullshit. I'm a billionaire because I worked my ass off and you will too. How do you deal with people who, because everyone has a boss, even the boss has a boss. We all think the coach is the boss, the coach isn't the boss. Coach reports to someone else, whether it's a board in a non-American situation or an owner in an American situation. How do you help them deal with bosses who are not receptive to this sort of an approach? Yeah, that's the battle we're fighting. So we're, we're fighting a societal battle on one side in that there's this understanding of toughness that we talked about, right? Put yourself mm -hmm. into a state of physical depletion. And then ultimately there's a most owners in a professional sport are first generation and so they made their money from, yeah, a particular way of working that came off the back of World War II. And so, yeah, that's the biggest challenge. I still think it's that personal human touch and so I, I would then flip that into business speak right so and it's the same thing that's again high performance knowledge work comes from a management theory and so I would flip it around and kind of have them educate and present around the same things is like communication decision making and awareness they're still just as relevant to the founder of a, an organization and if you can be aware of the right things, if you can communicate properly and make good decisions in the boardroom, it has the same knock-on effect to your business. And so, again, I don't think it's too dissimilar to the way you would describe it to others. Now, whether they go for it or not is, is another thing, but I'm telling you someone is going to get a competitive advantage doing this, probably the coaches I'm working with, and yeah. when we win, it'll be the new make, thing. It'll be the new thing. And the new and thing so, in the copycat industry. I think like I want to I want to finish up on that because I think that's a, a really cool way to tie a bow on it, particularly because there isn't a huge amount of evidence where you can point to a Bill Bill Belichick led dynasty where you're like, oh, this is why they were good, right? And so I get one of the questions I often will tie up with is what's a hope? We've talked about some of the hardships you went through that led to what you uncovered and pivoted to. You've talked about some of the heroes that you've learned from and applied in your own, in your own practice. But now we talk about hope moving forward. Why do you write your books? Why, what are you hoping to achieve working with these coaches? And why, what do you see as the future in this element of improving leadership? Forget just coaches. I want to try and give this to the rest of the audience here to help people be better leaders under pressure in high-pressure environments, in high-stakes environments, what is it that you hope your work is, is going to help add to that, that movement? Yeah, I'm very clear on this. So I'm here to add more colour and more humanity and more, let's call it audacity, 
back into coaching. And I think that's the way forward. Like I, I think what what we're looking for isn't more best practice and structure and, and all of those things. I think we've got that. I think we're pretty clear on what those are. Where leaders and coaches are going to stand out is in them. Like the power is in them and like their vision and, and their who they are at their core. And we are yet to see that, right? It's we have literally beaten them into a pulp to the point where when you see them on television, they don't look like they're having fun. They don't look human. They gray really fast. Their, their shoulders are slouched over. And it doesn't appear very human at all. I want to change that dynamic. I, I want to see rather than Sean McVeigh talking about burnout, you know, he's younger than me and you, right? And in his fifth year or whatever, and before his second Super Bowl, he's talking about burnout. I want you to see Sean McVeigh with like all his brightness and color and humanity and just, I want that to be like spilling out through the television. And I think we're a ways away from that, but I feel like that's my role here. I'm not religious, but I feel like there's a bit of a divine thing that if we can get more humanity back into our coaching, everyone is going to benefit. Fans, owners, players, like the, the whole industry benefits because we're we're squeezing too tight at the moment and it's it's not human. Love it. I love that. The great Martin Seligman, who I was lucky enough to learn from at, at UPenn, has a... Uh, a metaphor he uses for his approach to introducing positive psychology to the world, but it applies just as equally to this changing the conversation around being, you know, the weight of leaders and how we deal with that tough stuff is he talks about a watering hole effect. You could go out and deliver one-on-one -on -one coaching to individual people and eventually it takes off inside the population. And I think it comes from uh, maybe even the theory of farming where you can give individual pills to every cow on the paddock or you can just go sprinkle that stuff in the watering hole and they all drink from it. And sport is one of the great watering holes within our community as well as the arts and entertainment. There are a few others where a lot of people go anyway. And if, we're, if there's a lot of people watching sports, high profile, we take a lot of examples in society about how these people act. And this could be one of the great revolutions, mate, and you're, you're leading the way. So thank you for your work in the background that a lot of people don't know about. Fantastic stuff. I, I again, highly recommend... Cody's book, The Tough Stuff. And if anyone wants to track you down, mate, where do they find you? Uh, very active on Twitter. And then everything is centralised just at codyroyal.com, all my books and podcasts and everything. And with a name like Cody Royal, I'm very easy to find. <laughs> very easy to spell, C-O-D-Y-R-O-Y-L-E.com. And likewise on Twitter. So uh, give him a follow. And absolutely, I, I recommend for the last time on the show, read that book. Cody, great to catch up, mate. We'll talk again soon, no doubt, in one of our problem-solving phone calls that happens every now and then. And, uh, and meanwhile, mate, thanks again for your work. Thanks, Paddy. Thanks for having me on. And, and thank you for your work as well. It's much needed. And, yeah, looking forward to catching up next time. Cheers, mate. So what is it got to be so Yeah.